0: Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we worship you because with you there is peace to be had. And no matter what our lot we can say, it is well. It's well with my soul. And so teach us new depths of what that means today, please. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Happy April to you. Hope you guys are having a lovely Palm Sunday so far. And whenever it is, we can't wait to be back with you guys to corporately worship together again in person. But for now, we get to keep doing hashtag Pajama Church. Hope you're enjoying it. And so, however you're watching this, YouTube, Facebook, et cetera, thank you for trying to stay in the loop with what we believe God is still doing here in and through Fellowship Greenville. And we've said this Dozens of times and dozens of ways on different platforms, but obviously these are weird days. This season is one that we will look back on and reflect on for years to come. And Charlie's encouragement the past couple weeks has been spot on. Psalm 46, though the earth gives way, though the mountains might fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, we will not be moved, we will not fear we will be still and we will know that he is God, even if the stillness is kind of forced, right? And in this stillness from Hosea 2, like Charlie mentioned last week, we believe that God can make vineyards blossom in the wilderness in which we find ourselves. And so we do hope that you are praying and thinking along these lines. God, what are you trying to teach me? What does it look like to trust and obey you during this time? And What does it mean to to daily, regularly, even past this, choose faith over fear? And so we hope that you're choosing to think more about questions like these than the latest blog you might read or news update or scary stat. And so even if it's from a distance, like we've said, we hope you guys know that we are a church, we're a family, and we want to do this thing together as much as we possibly can. And we don't wanna set aside thinking about these things. We don't want to totally set them aside today. We'll kind of come back around to them in a little bit, but today and next Sunday are crucial days for Christians every year. The week in between these two Sundays is called Passion Week, and here's why it's crucial. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth entered Jerusalem for the last time, the very last time. He had been dozens of times before, but this last week, he taught in the temple all week, and he shared a final Passover meal with his friends, but his teaching in the temple got him in big trouble, and this time the trouble led to him being arrested. And then his arrest led to the two most significant events in human history, the cross and the resurrection. And for Christians, you can't have one without the other. And we believe that These two realities are the two sides of the one coin of the craziest, most glorious thing that has ever happened, and the significance of the cross and resurrection cannot be overstated. Personally, I like the illustration of a pair of glasses if you will. One one lens is like the cross and the other lens is the resurrection. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to view everything in life while wearing these lovely, stylish gospel glasses. That's what you're supposed to do. And we're supposed to see everything differently because of what we celebrate this upcoming week. And so, today, we will think on Jesus's crucifixion, and next week, Easter Sunday, Charlie will focus on Jesus's resurrection. He'll also be killing two birds with one stone next Sunday, and we'll actually be back in John next week as well, because where we left off in John, Jesus is getting ready to say, I am the resurrection and the life. I know several of you have asked uh, when we're gonna get back into John, and so our answer is really simple, why not Easter? But today, let's think well about the beauty and the uniqueness that is the cross of Christ. And to help us do this, this morning we're going to look at just one singular Bible verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that would be awesome. That'd be great. We'll give you a second to maybe go find them in your living room or in your house somewhere. If you get your Bibles and follow along, we would love that. We will glance at a couple of other passages this morning, but we'll eventually end up back here in 1 Corinthians chapter two. It's gonna be home base, 1 Corinthians chapter two. And verse two is our singular verse for this morning. And here, here Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And since it's just one verse, we're gonna put it on the screens down here at the bottom for you guys and for fun, maybe at home you could read it out loud. You guys ready? Here we go. We're gonna read it out loud. Together, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was a little weak. Let's let's try it one more time. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Way better that time. Way to go. This is God's word for God's people. Now, simply and plainly, Paul is saying a couple of things in this singular verse. One, he's saying that a crucified Jesus is the only kind of Jesus you can know. You can't just know Jesus as a moral teacher or a philosopher, just dropping tweets or one-liners here and there to make you feel better and scratch your forehead or scratch your brow. You must know him as the crucified Christ. But the other thing that he's saying, the bigger thing that Paul is saying, is that Christ crucified is the only thing whatsoever that should be known in the midst of Christians, among Christians. Now, obviously, that's not all we think about and that's not all we talk about. We just don't walk around every day looking at a picture of Jesus on the cross and going, okay, I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it. So what, is, what does Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 2.2? He means, how does Christ crucified relate to Money. How does Christ crucified relate to the corona apocalypse? right? How does it? How does Christ crucified relate to your motives or your relationships or your addictions or your shame or your hobbies or your personality? How does it relate to anything? I think Paul is trying to get his friends to ask the right question, and the question is about seeing the world in light of the cross and learning to wear the the gospel glasses, if you will. So... How do we look at all of life through the lens of the cross? That's our question this morning. That's what we have to think about. How do we look at life through the lens of the cross? I think this is exactly what Paul is driving at when he says, I don't want to know anything among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, uh, because i turned 40 next year and i was born and raised a church kid that means i was forced to love the 1980 the the 80s and the 90s christian music king Michael W. Smith, and his album, Change Your World, is not just ironic, nostalgic goodness for me. I think I have a picture of it. You have to see his beautiful, beautiful, flowing mane and his hair right there. That's not just ironic, nostalgic goodness for me. It's legitimately a great record. I like to call it Key Changer World. That's a joke for Matt Rexford and other musicians, but he's got a song on there called Cross of Gold, and it's a little Christian commentary on... What people are thinking when they wear uh, a cross as jewelry, like as a little trinket or, or decoration or whatnot? He asks in his song, "Is this is this a passion? Your little cross of gold is this a passion? Is this a symbol of love, or is this just religious fashion? Is it's just like a, a fad you're going through, like a like a stylish fad you're going through?" And the hook line of the chorus is just, "Tell me why you wear your cross of gold." Now. While uh, Michael doesn't take the song in this direction, as a Bible reader who's trying to think about scripture on its own terms, like in its historical context, I wonder, I do really wonder, what the earliest Christians a long time ago would think about us using the cross as jewelry today. So I'm kind of stealing his question, if you will, and aiming it a different direction from the first century forward to now. I've heard it said several times and in different ways. For people back then, us wearing a cross around our neck is like wearing a golden electric chair, right? It was an instrument of execution, and that seems super heavy and dark and terrifying. But is is that really the way that first century people or the earliest followers of Jesus would think of our cross earrings and cross tattoos and the crosses on our shirts or in our houses or here at church. Like, is that really how they would have thought about it? The ancient Greek philosopher Cicero said, if you want to be like a respectable and dignified person, like let's just say you want to present yourself really nice at a a job interview, or if you're at a party and you really want people to like you, or if you're trying to get in really good with your hopefully future in-laws, for dignified people, people who we're socially aware. In any of these contexts or contexts like them, Cicero said they shouldn't even say the word cross out loud in public. That's how grotesque and barbaric this idea was, this word was in the first century world. And I think we've, we've lost touch with the like ugliness and, and violence of the cross. Here's a great example. In his book, The Kingdom of God in America, Richard Niebuhr says that the modern gospel is that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Isn't that terrifying? Somehow we found a way to strip the cross of its brutality and just make it, us, make it about us feeling good, right? And that's really sad and, and strange, but however earlier followers of Jesus would think about us using the cross, to them it was definitely not fashionable or, or cute or trendy, like, like a string quartet did not play in the corner off beside Jesus as he hung there dying as he was crucified. Now, should we make beautiful melodies and sing about it? Absolutely. Should the cross be a picture of God's love and grace to us? Absolutely. But should we presume upon it and sanitize it and avoid how unpleasant it is? Absolutely not. We need to understand the why of the cross, and that includes understanding how the New Testament writers thought about it in their day. So let's think historically for just a second. Historically, the cross was used by Rome as both punishment and threat. The cross basically said this to everybody in the Roman Empire. Go ahead, go ahead, disagree with us, go ahead, rebel against us, and you just, just wait and see what happens to you. You're going to be a spectacle. We'll hang you there naked, people will walk by, they will make fun of you. Your death will be a combination of starvation, inflammation, humiliation, and a dozen other things. There's the insufferable thirst. There's the traumatic fevers, the jagged wounds, the long draining of blood. Just the fact that you were whipped and then you carried your crossbeam earlier that day would do you in. And all of this was further aggravated by exposure to the sun's heat. And as you can see, this is not mere like socio-political, cultural justice for a felon. Crucifixion was thoughtful torture intended to be a slow, flagrant political reminder that Rome wins and that Caesar is Lord. And then then when we start to talk about Jesus's death on the cross, we have to talk about how he didn't deserve it. Like, he never, ever planned to overthrow Rome. There wasn't a conspiracy with Jesus. He, He wasn't a militaristic threat to Caesar. And theologically, for us, he never sinned. He's the perfect son of God. And so when we think specifically about Jesus's death, there are layers of injustice that make it worse past our imaginations. And if we're honest, these things are just scratching the surface. There are dozens of dozens of other historical accounts of crucifixion, and they go into far greater detail. And so maybe with things like this, you can start to see why Cicero said what he said, that dignified people shouldn't even say the word cross in public. But don't forget, with Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, he is asserting the exact opposite I don't want to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and so in spite of how horrific and grim it might seem and knowing that clinging to the cross is not going to accrue you or gain you any cultural cool points we have to ask how should we reconsider all of life through the lens of the cross that's what we need to think about so let's do this. Let's start as, as broadly as we can to think about our question today. Here's what I mean. Two of the strongest realities in the entire universe are God's gracious and lavish love and humanity's corrupt, rebellious sinfulness. God's love is more vast than you could conceive. His his kindness and grace are more expansive than you could ever fathom. So all of the love that, that you and I want and seek and feel in human intimacy and relationships is the faintest echo of what God's love is truly like. All earthly loves and joys and delights are the fuzziest, faintest shadow, but he is the substance. They are like a flickering candle, but he is the sun. They're like a drop of rain, but he is the ocean. His love is past, way past our categories of it. <clears throat> and then conversely, we are more sneaky and arrogant and broken and hurt and angry, and self-absorbed than we think. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is wicked above all else. Who can understand it? Which means when we use this logic, well, at least I'm not as bad off as, you know, what's her name? That proves that we're more wicked than we think. When we try to understand the extent of our sinfulness by using other people as the standard, we fall woefully short, and, and that proves the wickedness of our own hearts. So No person, no idea, no human-made law is the standard for how we should live. God himself is that standard. And the more you live, the more your ongoing need for him becomes clear. So again, two of the strongest realities in the entire universe are God's gracious and lavish love and humanity's corrupt, rebellious sinfulness. And here's how these relate to the cross. This is a A stunning quote from Tim Keller that you may have heard before. Keller writes, at the cross, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. At the same time. Isn't that so, so good? One more time, one more time. Because of the gospel and at the cross, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. So yes, historically, Rome was the oppressive and violent force that did crucifixion. But what's the real reason behind the barbaric nature of the cross? It's it's our sin. The wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans. Separation from God. And Jesus took that into himself for us at the cross. He was separated from the Father so that we could be brought into the family. So the ugliness and the injustice and the torture of the cross, yeah, it should gross you out, but it shouldn't just gross you out because it's not fun to think about. It should gross you out because it was your sin and my sin that put him there. It's all a commentary on our unrighteousness. That is what we deserve because of our sin. But at the same time, that's the Keller quote, right? At the same time, Paul says this in Romans 5. God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross is really about love, right? It's about God's unconditional and gracious provision. Because of the cross, God accepts us. So God doesn't accept you based on whether or not you feel spiritual. That's That's an epidemic, and it's just wrong. He doesn't accept you based on your track record. He, he loves us based on what Jesus has accomplished and not what we accomplish. God, God's love and grace to us is based on Jesus' performance and not ours. And this is most clearly on display for us in the cross. And it's here at Calvary where these two realities collide. Our sin and God's love. And God's love wins, right? Now, <clears throat> these two ideas colliding at the cross, this is going to help us start to answer our question. But before we answer it for ourselves, let's get a feel for how Paul wanted his friends in Corinth to, to answer it. So if your Bible is still open to 1 Corinthians, let's just look at some of the bold subheadings throughout the book for just a second. Flip to chapter three, look at the bold subheading, <coughs> bold subheading above chapter three right there. It says divisions in the church. Now turn over to chapter five. Look at the bold subheading there: uh, sexual immorality in the church, or sexual immorality def- defiles the church. There are some at Corinth. There's somebody at Corinth who was having uh, an intimate relationship with his stepmom. True story. Corinth was basically like Vegas, but it was worse. It was actually a port city. Um, you can you can imagine that. So tons of immorality there. Look at the bold subheading in chapter six of First Corinthians. Chapter six lawsuits against believers. There are a couple of friends in the city of Corinth and the church of Corinth who are in business together, and then they couldn't agree on how to do business, and so they wanted to take each other to court and sue each other. Flip to chapter eight. Chapter eight, the bold subheading in chapter eight is food offered to idols. Uh, Some people were fine with eating meat and drinking wine that had been offered in pagan temples, and some were not okay with it, and that led to some, some fights there the end of chapter 11, people are showing up early and drinking too much communion wine and getting drunk at communion, basically. At chapter 12, you can see the bold subheading there, spiritual gifts. There were some who thought that they were more spiritually elite than others because they had certain spiritual gifts and other people didn't. And then look at chapter 15, the bold subheading in chapter 15. It says the resurrection of Christ. So some are misappropriating and wrongly believing the resurrection of Jesus. So the point is, It is to this struggling church, struggling with these things, that Paul says, hey, I don't want to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Which means the most innate problem isn't the divisions themselves, the immorality itself, the drunkenness itself, the spiritual elitism itself. The problem is they weren't looking at each of these things properly through the lens of the cross. That's why 1 Corinthians 2 2 exists. Check it out. Just think about it. The cross reframes the divisions in the church by reminding all of the Corinthians that they are not worthy of grace more than the people they disagree with. What if you lived like that was true? Or in chapter six and in chapter eight. The cross means that God doesn't judge you so now you're set free from judging each other in court or in regards to food or, or wine or whatever. The cross is the place where we see God's love most intimately, so now we don't have to go look for intimacy, intimacy somewhere else in temporary uh, relationships or immor- immoralities. This is how Paul wants them to run everything through the filter of Christ crucified. That's why 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 exists in first Corinthians. Now, remember our question, how do we look at all of life through the lens of the cross? Well, here's here's what I want to do for just a second. <clears throat> Let's just push the metaphor just a wee little bit. The gospel glasses that we should be wearing, they should actually be, here we go, we all get to be grandparents, they should actually be <clears throat> bifocals. I think I have a picture for you. There we go. They should all be bifocals. Now, here's what I mean by that, follow me, follow me really closely. If the cross is the place where our sin and God's love collide and God's love wins out, then that means that we should look at everything by thinking, hmm, I'm probably part of the problem here. That's the smaller bottom part of the lens, and at the same time, we should think, oh, wait a second, but God's love is redeeming this. That's the bigger part of the lens, right? You should never think about your money or or your relationships or your hobbies just in terms of your sin or God's love. Rather, if you look at them through the lens of the cross, you will look at them rightly. You will see not only some of the mess that you've made, but also the redemption that God is working out in that space or in that context. This is how our gospel glasses glasses are, are bifocal, stylishly bifocal, that's what we mean. let's just do it for a practical life situation really quickly. The bifocal gospel glasses. Let's just talk about marriage with these glasses on for just a second. Your reflex reaction to the question, hey, what's the worst part of your marriage? Be honest, nobody's listening. What's the worst part of your marriage? It's probably going to be something about the other person. Like, they don't follow through they're selfish. They lie. They're, they're lazy. They, they don't serve me. They said they were going to serve me. They don't listen. They just kind of add fuel to the fire of my frustrations. Like, like we, we agree on a way to do something and then they go and do the opposite thing. Like they know all of my little tiny pet peeves around the house, all the quirky stuff with food chewing and the gold that is toilet paper and how to load the dishwasher. They know all that more and they keep doing it, even though I've really nicely asked 134 times a day, right? So how do you look at that situation through the lens of the cross? It seems even kind of weird to ask that, right? Well, first off, you own the fact that you do the same to them. You're never, ever, ever, ever ever innocent in the problems in your marriage. Old Presbyterian theologian B.B. Warfield said, you bring nothing to the cross except the sin that necessitates it. And you bring the same thing to your marriage. So whenever I do premarital counseling or marriage counseling, and I talk about conflict resolution, I talk about owning your percentage first. So if the conflict is 20% your fault and it's 80% theirs, your job, your job is to own your 20% and confess it and repent of it and admit that you were wrong. You, you can't change them. And here's the deal, everybody's got a percentage and it's always higher than we think. And it's the cross of Jesus that reminds you that you have a problem and that it starts with you. But here's the best thing, the cross doesn't stop there, it goes further. The cross tells us that through patient, sacrificial love, our bond of trust can be stronger if we seek to serve our partner, our spouse, rather than just win an argument. Endurance and long suffering and grace, these are the things that Jesus did for us in his death to forgive us of our sins. So, why would we not make those the bonds of our marriage as well? Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it, it's worth it. I'm saying that biblical marriages are never meant to be put on autopilot. They're meant to be seen and experienced through the lens of the cross. In fact, that's that's true with all of our relationships. That's just an example uh, with marriage. But he, he, here's, here's, uh, here's what I wanna do. I wanna give us a few practical ways to think about this uh, for all of life. But before uh, I do... I, I, I just have to take a second to give you guys some book commercials. I can't not give book commercials, especially if it's a more topical sermon. I've heard that some of you might have a little bit more flex time, a little bit more flex time to read, and I think that this is a worthy topic, this idea of contemplating everything in view of the cross might be new for some of you, and if it's not, it's still a lifelong patient journey of figuring out how to do it well. So I got some book commercials, and these books are books that have helped me think about these ideas. So here we go. First one, one of the most classic books on this is John Stott's The Cross of Christ. It is about 30 years old, but somehow it's still fresh and so, so good. Stott does an excellent job talking about the centrality of the cross and what it means for us as followers of Jesus. Also, next book, The Explicit Gospel by Matt Chandler. These ideas that we've been talking about, about uh, being deeply sinful and even more deeply loved, Chandler is great at considering the ramifications of things like that for daily life. Uh, the most theological one that I'd like to suggest to you is The Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge. Uh, I like it because she she comes from a, a different church tradition than I do and she has so much to offer in terms of kind of theologically processing the meaning of Jesus's death. And lastly, maybe a familiar one to you, <clears throat> Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt. We used this several years ago, but it offers such simple, practical wisdom on how to fluently kind of speak gospel, speak the cross into all the nooks and crannies of life. So if you didn't check that one out a few years ago, now might be a good time too. So uh, again, if you have time and space to read and a couple extra bucks, I would grab one of these and hopefully it will keep you thinking about our question, how do we look at life, all of life through the lens of the cross? Like what does it mean? What does it feel like, look like to reimagine all of life in light of Jesus's death for us. So here's what I wanna do practically for just a few minutes. I want us to all uh, put on our gospel glasses. Hopefully you have your pair right there. Put on our gospel glasses and then briefly answer three questions that we all ask. And we're gonna answer them with the cross in view. So here we go. Question number one, With the cross in view, what is God really like? What is God really like? Well, we can know what God is like through Holy Scripture, through creation, through the Spirit that he has given us inside of us, through the Spirit in other people. And we believe that God speaks in all of these things, but his voice is never louder and more crystal clear than when he speaks at the cross, At the cross, it's as if he's yelling at the top of his divine lungs. And the cross, if you remember, is also proof that God is not scared to get his hands dirty. Remember, the cross is messy and violent and shameful, but it does not deter God. So what does the cross say about who he is? Don't forget Keller's wisdom here. It's both a picture of our sinfulness and our acceptedness. Meaning it's a bifocal lens. Thus, because of the cross, we know that God is just yet loving, holy yet gracious, pure yet forgiving, and righteous yet compassionate the more we press into what Jesus did for us in his death, the more we can see all these things come together. And and these things are not in competition with one another. They are all a part of who God truly is, and we can see it at the cross. But here's what you have to ask yourself. Is this the God that you worship and that you trust and that you pray to? Is that what he's like? Or is the god you think about primarily angry at you like most of the time he's he's disappointed in you is that how you conceive of him i hope not or maybe you have the opposite problem is god in your mind just dispensing and throwing out so-called love and niceties without responsibility and he never asks anything of anybody is that how you think of god neither of these is the god of the cross The God of the cross is just and holy and righteous and sovereign. And at the very same time, not in competition, the God of the cross is loving and gracious and patient and merciful. And he invites us to live in the sacrificial love of Calvary. That's exactly what God is like and the cross tells us quite plainly. All right, here's another question that we all ask ourselves what about my past? What do, I, what do I do with it? How do I think about my past? Now, I know that this can be super fragile. For some of you, your past might haunt you. You might think, well, I, I was abused or I was traumatized or I was neglected or I abused people or, or, or drugs or alcohol. I hurt others. I was a bad parent or I was a bad spouse. I lied and I cheated. So maybe for you, The ghosts of your past haunt you. Or maybe you have the opposite problem. Maybe you use your past like a trophy case. Like, look look how awesome I am. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've achieved athletically, financially, relationally, vocationally. I'm a big deal. You you gotta see this. God is lucky to have me on his team. (laughs) Maybe that's how you think about it. But the question is, how should you process and think about your past as a follower of Jesus? That's what we're talking about here. Well, because the cross is where I know I'm accepted, my past is neither a burden that can weigh me down nor a step stool to gain me favor. We've got to get that. Like your past doesn't slow you down or speed you up when it comes to deserving God's love. On our own, none of us deserves it. None of us deserve His love. And that's why our past is neither a weighty burden nor a stepstool advantage. But if we process it all through the lens of the cross, it can be yet another way in the in the rearview mirror of your life to see God's patience and love and provision for you. Your past. Whether good or bad doesn't define you. Christ crucified defines you if you're following him. And believing this and living in it is as liberating as it is difficult. So God, please give us grace and strength to to believe that. Okay, last question that we're gonna put through the cross filter here. And everybody asks this, sometimes we ask it consciously, sometimes We don't, but what about my future? Like, what about it? What's it gonna be like? What's it gonna look like? What's gonna happen? How's it gonna unfold, right? Now, some of you can't even get your minds past uh, Mr. Coronavirus, who has recently come to visit, and and you can't get your mind past coronavirus and all things related, and you are super anxious about your health. You might be anxious about the health of somebody that you love, Some of you might just be, you're not worried about your health, you're freaking out about what's the economy going to be like, Like, what's that going to be like in the future, I already have lost my job, and and I'm not saying these aren't important questions, but sometimes the anxiety of it gets to us. Some of you might be trying to blame everything on the political party that you didn't vote for because you think that's going to make you feel better, and some of you might just be scratching the itch of fear because you don't know what else to do. Again, I'm not saying that concern for health and thoughtfulness about the economy are are wrong. I'm saying that your primary reference point for thinking about the future should be the cross of Jesus and not Facebook and Twitter. That's what we're saying. And furthermore, this coronavirus, I believe this wholeheartedly, this coronavirus thing isn't causing you to think and feel new things. It's just intensifying what was already in your heart to begin with. That might be tough for some of you to believe. I believe it's completely true. It's just shining a spotlight on it. And for some of you, it might be depression, anxiety, worry about the future. And then again, there's an opposite reaction. For some of you, it might be a flippant kind of confidence and presumption and swagger and indifference. There are varying degrees of worry and confidence that we all have about coronavirus or tests or boyfriends or college or marriage or kids or jobs or relationships or work, all that stuff. And regardless of what our reflex response is to looking forward on the horizon, we have to, the Bible compels us to submit all of that to the cross. And even more intensely when we think about the future, We're not just thinking about this life but the next one. So how should we do that? How does the gospel change that? And this is where we get to bring in Easter Sunday morning as well. So because of the cross and the resurrection, I am eternally secure in God's love no matter if my earthly life meets pains or successes. We have to believe that. Think about it. Because he perfectly, perfectly endured the cross, He knows how to endure with you and for you when life is at its absolute worst. So when trouble comes, and it will, Jesus isn't scared. He's not scared of how gross and messy it will get because he endured the cross. But better yet, he didn't stay dead. He emptied death of its lasting power. And that's why any future pains or successes will be nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed one day in the fullness of kingdom come. Don't you see? That's how you start to think about your future in view of the cross. And I got some good news for you. Well, if If this is beautiful to you, I've got some good news for you. There's a way in which this sermon never ends, but you just have to keep preaching it to yourself and to each other every day. How do I look at this through the cross? How do I look at that through the cross? This is how we get to do life as followers of Jesus. We get to wear these gospel glasses and wearing them and seeing the world through them and thinking and living based on what we see. It's one massive, massive act of Faith, because if you take these glasses off, you're gonna be lured into fear. You're gonna be tempted by the siren song of self. But faith and trust in Jesus because of his death for us gives us a completely different way to see the world. And it's the way that God sees the world. And it might not be easy, it might not be easy all the time, but but it's worth it. It's worth it because the cross is... The symbol of our faith. It's not a fish or a flame or a dove or an anchor or praying hands or a shepherd's staff. The cross is the dominant image of our lives with God. And that is exactly why Paul wrote what he wrote to his friends in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Fellowship Greenville, it has to be the same for us. Let's decide to know nothing in our midst, even at a distance. Let's decide to know nothing among us except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Wouldn't that be awesome if we were a cruciformed people shaped completely by God's love for us in the cross and by the hope of the resurrection? May it be so. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done by undoing the power of death. We praise you for the cross. We thank you that because of your death, all fear will be silenced one day and it doesn't get the final say. And so, Jesus, because of this, we trust you and you alone for life and salvation and hope, both now and forever. We trust you, Jesus. Teach us what that means, to wear the gospel glasses, to trust you alone. Please, Jesus, teach us that. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.